0: Well, welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. The morning weather report is that for the second day it is glorious outside. Perfect blue skies, no clouds whatsoever. In fact, he said, with a contrived segue, it looks a little bit like the south of France.
1: Well, I've never been to the south of France, Charlie, so I don't know. Although I do remember uh, when I was in the uh, newspaper business, I was a copy editor when I was a young man, and we. Uh, We're in the presence of the uh, Georgia family who owned the chain of newspapers I worked for, and the uh, owner was occupied with something, and his his wife was trying to keep us entertained while we were uh, going to do what we are going to do, and she was saying, and I can't really quite do the accent, but we've just come back from the south of France, and we just love it so much there, and where do you like to stay when you go to the south of France? (laughs) Lady, I make $21,000 a year. (laughs) I don't go to the south of Texas, much less the south of France. But speaking of France, so, you know, I thought this was just nuts when I saw it. It was one of those headlines that you see that you think can't possibly be true. But in addition to the, is it 35-hour week? Correct. And the however many years of vacation per year and all the rest of the stuff they have, it's now illegal for your boss to call you after 6 o'clock if you happen to be French or to send you something via a company's smartphone or for you as an employee to look at work-related materials uh, say on your company website or something like that. So basically no work after six under any circumstances for people in the various technology and consulting sectors and things like that. You know this has a couple of effects. One is A to make American liberals Envious of the French. And there are lots of things to be envious about from the
0: French. Well, and the British of because the story we read was in the Guardian. Yeah, that's true. But the other thing is
1: that um, it leads to a great deal of lying. If you look at uh, at the European uh, productivity per work hour numbers, and you compare them, you know, country for country, the British, the Swiss, the Germans, the French are way off the charts. There, it's this weird outlier where French productivity per man hour is just absurdly high. Now either the French are really, really working uh, just amazingly efficiently or they lie about how many hours they work because there's a law that says you have to can only work X and sometimes work takes more than that. So um, while there are certainly things to admire, I think about the French, I always my favorite thing about the French, they never apologize for being French. They like their language, they like their culture, they like their food, they like their civilization, and God bless them for that. And even though I'm a libertarian, even things like the academy sort of appeals to the right winger in me, uh, in a sense, because if you read, oh, American literature and journalism or listen to American television, you really wish there were an academy here to make people use the the language correctly. But I think, you know, I think we need to adopt this at National Review here, because every now and then I get an email from Lowry at 10 o'clock saying, hey, could you X, Y, Z comment on this? I'm going to say, you know, vive la France, Rich. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, the, the French, sometimes, the reliance upon unions and, and labor regulations can yield some interesting outcomes. My favorite ever French story was a few years ago, the French equivalent of sort of national SWAT team, I suppose, this armed police unit, had it written into the. Their- Yeah, had it written into their contracts, these are armed police, that they were not to be deprived of their lunchtime drinks. In other words, the very people... You mean drink drinks? I mean alcoholic drinks. Yeah. (laughs) So the very people on whom the French state relies, should there be some sort of terrorist attack or hostage situation... Uh, had it written in to the rules that they could have two glasses of wine at lunchtime.
1: So instead of a two-martini lunch, it's a two-Bordeaux lunch, and God knows how many rounds of ammo.
0: Right. Now, if, this, if the SWAT teams are, are abiding by those rules, goodness knows what journalists in France could have a <laughs> legal recourse to allow.
1: Now, we do have here at National Review in the in the kitchen here the world's saddest bar with this, what is this bargain basement gin that's been sitting up there for as long as I've worked here? and. I think there's a bottle of bitters or something up there and some sort of kind of moldy vermouth and a few other things. Although there is, you know, we have to we have to admit there is a sort of Friday afternoon, Friday evening drink-at-your-desk tradition in National Review that starts around maybe 6 o'clock after... There was we we go out and
0: get that alcohol. Yeah, that's
1: true, but we've got this permanent bar stocked full of stuff that I don't think anyone's ever going to drink. It's probably no, been we... here since... Fifty-five is probably moved, whatever, three or four offices we've, we've If, if we
0: then. ever find ourselves taken over by armed Think Progress employees who wish to find incriminating evidence against the right, and we need as the Iranian embassy in uh, the late 1970s to burn and shred all of the <laughs> <laughs> various stories that we've run over the years, that will be where we go to start the fire, I think. Yes, but,
1: I think that's that's got the makings of a pretty good fire there. And speaking of things that burst into flames, awkward segue, um, you know, a couple of years ago I was at a debate here in New York City, and uh, it was a debate between uh, Slavoj Zizek and uh, Andre Bernard Levy, and, uh, you know, two big lefties, one of whom is marginally crazier than the other. Uh, And it was a really interesting evening, and they were talking about, you know, politics and violence and when violence is appropriate and all that sort of stuff. And, but I noticed when I walked into the New York City Public Library where the uh, debate was being held that seated to, next, seated to each other in the front row were uh, Salman Rushdie and uh, ayan Hirsi Ali. And I thought, I'm going to sit at the point in this library that is furthest away from these two people because if anyone drops a bomb in here, it's going to be on them. So both you know, brave, if sometimes over-the-top people in their way. I like Rushdie's novels a lot. I think he's personally a little bit annoying. Although not as annoying as he was like in this hanging out with Bono phase, which was which was pretty bad. But the man's a, a hell of a novelist. Ali is someone who's, uh, whose work I've admired in many ways. And she was supposed to speak, what was it, Brandeis University? That's right. And she got uninvited to speak at Brandeis University because she apparently has said unflattering things about Muslims over the course of her life, which took Brandeis by surprise. Now, as far as I know, no one in the world knows her name for any other reason than the fact that she's a very trenchant critic of Islamic society. So what do you make of
0: all that? Well, you're right to observe that her statement suddenly being discovered by a university that had uh, offered her an honorary degree and a commencement speaking gig is bizarre. Uh, As you say, I'm not quite sure what else she would be known for. But even if Brandeis had just discovered that she had pretty hardline views on Islam, it shouldn't matter by their own testimony. And back in the day, I think it was 2006, Tony Kushner, the playwright, was awarded an honorary degree, and there was a great deal this of criticism. He angels in America. Correct. And there was a great deal of criticism that was leveled at Brandeis for this because of comments that Kushner had made about Israel, mm. uh, among which were that Jews who defended Israel vehemently were disgusting, I think was the word, mm-hmm. and that he would be fine if Israel had never been created and thinks the world would be better off had it never existed. Now, Brandeis issued a very strongly word and, and I think admirable statement uh, in which they assured the public and assured their critics that all they cared about was the quality of their honorees' work and not their political views. And Brandeis said that the political views of their students and of their faculty didn't factor into whether they admitted them or not or awarded them degrees at the end of their time, and nor would it to those receiving honorary degrees and commencement speaking gigs. Now, This earlier is where you
1: need to insert, by the way, the standard Mike Petemmer joke, which is, totally not like his plays, but love him on policy. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> right. But earlier in the week, Brandeis said that having reviewed the political views and pronouncements of Ian uh, Hirsi Ali, they could no longer square the honorary degree with the values of the campus. Mm. Now, I may be rubbish and unsophisticated and unsubtle in my thinking, but I can't square those two statements. Either <laughs> yeah. one is impressed enough by the work and politics doesn't matter uh, that an honorary degree is, is acceptable, or one isn't. And in the case of Brandeis, they seem, funnily enough, when the target of the criticism was is Islam and not uh, Judaism or Israel, to have changed their mind. It would be much better had they come out contemptible as it would be, much better if they had just said, well, we don't like her views, or, well, we've given in to the pressure, or, well, our faculty don't like her, or the students don't like her, or we think the CAIR uh, is more important than is our commitment to free speech. So... Uh, whether or not they were surprised shouldn't really have mattered why I think this matters other than a a general commitment to free expression is this Uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali is known for defending women's rights Uh, she left Somalia uh, having been subjected to genital mutilation and to a proposed forced marriage and she fled to Holland in Holland she became a member of parliament and an academic and she also wrote a film that aimed to show the public what she'd been through in Somalia. For making and releasing that film, the director, Theo van Gogh, was executed in the street by an Islamic terrorist uh, who tried to cut van Gogh's head off and before leaving him dead, uh, pinned to his corpse a threat to kill Ali as well. Uh, She then fled to the United States uh, where she has been not in hiding Uh, I'm sure she's protected, but not in hiding, but has founded an organization that seeks to protect women from theocracy. Now, on paper, (laughs) one would expect this to have been greatly admired by the buzzwords and privileged crowd, but, of course, she's made inflammatory remarks against Islam, Mm -hmm. and Islam is a religion that is largely adhered to by poor and dark people who are have been targeted of late by white people for their support of international terrorism and so on and so forth. And so this seems to confuse the leftist mind and put the cat among the hierarchy of victims. So we've seen the preposterous and obnoxious sight of a woman who has sided with the weakest people probably in the world, the women in Islamic cultures, being hounded out of a speaking gig and an honorary degree because she criticized the religion that tried twice to oppress and to literally kill her.
1: Just a man. You know if you know what the headline would have read if this had been a different thing where she if she had criticized say Catholicism and had been disinvited from Notre Dame it would be, you know, catholic institution represses woman of color. You know that's what the uh, what the headline would have said. You're just reminding me of something uh, because we're talking about theocracy and such things one of the things i hate in life i hate a lot of things let's face it i'm pretty much driven by hate it's why i get out of bed in the morning (laughs) but um one of the things i hate in life is the term religious fundamentalist because it matters a whole lot which religion you're talking about you know if you're a fundamentalist quaker not really such a problem for the world uh, you know, I mean fundamentalist Mormons maybe were they're actually kinda crazy back in the day, but your modern fundamentalist Mormon is, you know, going to be very polite to you and uh, and possibly give you a job. Uh, you know, you're a fundamentalist Methodist, not such a problem. You know, you're a fundamentalist pick 'em. them, uh, but there are, you know, your fundamentalist Tibetan Buddhist, maybe not such a huge problem, although maybe occasionally, who knows? They used to practice slavery and a few other things. But in the modern world, uh, the fundamentalism that really is of note for the most part is is Islam, for better or for worse. Now, I think that among conservatives, there's a lot of unfair and boorish and boobish uh, talk about Islam corporately. Uh, it's not the cartoon that some people on the right make it out to be. But that stuff is still there. You know, there's mm-hmm. still that strong element there. And it's not tiny. You know, people talk about... You know, some vanishingly small share of Muslims endorse things like terrorism or the repression of women or stoning homosexuals and things like that. It's not a tiny number. Uh, It's not 60%, but it's not, you know, one half of 1% either. And I remember being sort of stopped uh, in my tracks when I was young and I was working at the uh, newspaper in India. And uh, I was speaking with a guy who was a member of one of these sort of angry Hindu nationalist parties. and I mean, you know, fundamentalist Hindus really aren't too much trouble for the world usually either.
0: Well, fundamental uh, Sikhs are probably the, the ideal, right? Well, don't ask Indira Gandhi about that. But uh, well, That was probably badly yeah, stated. Yeah, That's a rule, though. Yeah,
1: it's certainly in the modern age, too. Yeah. So and this fellow was saying, you know, uh, he was very into preserving India's cultural identity as a Hindu country full of Hindu people who believe Hindu things. And someone was complaining to him and said, well, no, you can't talk that way. You know, we we have freedom of religion. We have tolerance. We have, you know, a secular constitution. And he said, right. And we have that because we're a Hindu country full of Hindu people and we're not 85% Muslim. And there certainly is, you know, a point to that. Yes. You know, my uh, experience, you know, India on one side, Pakistan on the other, same people, same history. Uh, but they developed very different cultures, and part of the culture of Pakistan certainly is this kind of fundamentalist Islam of the sort that keeps Ayn Hirsi Ali in occasional fear for her life.
0: Right. Now, I shouldn't really say this because it tends to distract from the principled argument. Huh. Uh, whether I like or dislike, agree with or disagree with Ayn Hirsi Ali is irrelevant to the question of how she's been treated by Brandeis, but... I think that at her more bombastic moments, she's wrong. True. Now, she has failed to distinguish between different types of Muslim. And as you say, she's, I wouldn't call it boobish, uh, and I wouldn't be patronizing enough to suggest that she doesn't know what she's saying because of what she's been through. But I think declaring war, and she's made no bones about this, on the entirety of the Islamic world, effectively, uh, is, is a step too far. Um, having said that, uh, I would love to talk to her about it and I'd love to hear her uh, speak about it. And really, when you look through the litany of complaints and grievances, to quote the famous men of the founding generation that have been leveled at Ian Hirsi Ali by her critics, uh, it, the prevailing argument is we're offended by her Right. or she makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know. I can't speak for anyone else. I don't know why other people went to college or to university, but I know why I went. And it wasn't because I thought that over the course of three years I would have a certain expertise in seven or eight topics or whatever it is that you end up doing. It was because I wanted to meet people who were smarter than I am and to meet tutors who were smarter and better thinkers than I am and to be beaten up, for want of a better word, intellectually by those people. That's what I got at Oxford. And very often I was uncomfortable or offended or uh, I found what was being said difficult and challenging. Now, if Ayan Hirsi Ali makes Muslims or women or anybody feel uncomfortable, then she strikes me as the, exactly the sort of person that you would want to bring to a university that is supposed to be diverse and tolerant and permissive, and all of yeah. those words that we hear, a not if, disinvited. If, there's
1: a big if hanging in that sentence, though, which is if you had any intellectual integrity, if you had any guts, right. if you weren't a typical pansy, worthless university administrator who couldn't possibly compete in a real job anywhere in the world. And uh, you know, if you had any sense of adventure or any sense of what you know, intellectual pursuits are actually about, and that's the real tragedy of our of our educational institutions. It's not that they can't teach you how to be an electrical engineer; sure, they can. You know, you can learn that at the University of Texas, but that they encourage this culture of conformity, right. of timidity, of gutlessness and uh And they don't do anything to uh, to really reinforce the sense that you have specifically at an academic institution, and particularly a fairly elite one like Brandeis, that as intellectuals, you have some public responsibilities, uh, one of which is engaging in debate, one of which is engaging the other side uh, on its actual arguments. And there used to be a tradition among academics that if someone uh you know if someone challenged you to a debate on a subject or criticized your essay on this or that, It was like a duel, right? You were bound by honor to go confront them and have, you know, a debate in public or something like that. And now it's just, oh, my God, we can't talk about that. Let's not bring her here. Someone might get mad. Well, if you're not getting mad, you're not doing your job.
0: Right. And at its root of the instinct you've just described is insecurity. Yeah. When I was at Oxford, Nick Griffin, the obnoxious, literally fascist, Uh, National Socialists, really, if you look at where the British National Party takes its voters from, they're Labour voters who hate people who aren't white. They wish to spend on infrastructure. They wish to tax. They wish to pass reams of laws. They just don't want anyone who isn't white to benefit. Uh, Nick Griffin was was invited, uh, and I supported that decision. Now, why did I support that decision? Firstly, because I think that people like that should be able to speak, to construct their own gallows and are better off not being driven underground. But secondly, because the Oxford Union, which was the location of the planned speech, uh, is the perfect place to invite people who have odd views. And we know, I won't re-rehearse the arguments in favor of free speech, but it was founded, I think, in 1837. Now, in 1837, women couldn't vote. In 1837, the Corn Laws were still on the books. In 1837, there was no universal- They still are in the United States. Right, there was no universal suffrage, uh, and- those who advocated for those things were deemed to be extremists and dangerous. So the Oxford Union invited them anyway um, because it was a safe place. There was the equivalent in uh, non-official English uh, rules that anybody who came to the Oxford Union could say what they wanted, including things that would otherwise have been illegal to say. It was the last bastion of free speech. I think it was described by Harold Macmillan. Now, Nick Griffin's invitation uh, was met by me with uh, with enthusiasm because I could not wait to see mm-hmm, the best mm-hmm. and brightest of the Oxford University student population rip this ghastly little man to pieces. And yet he was eventually disinvited because the anti-fascists did their no free speech for fascist regime, literally put on balaclavas and ran around the Oxford Union for three days shouting at people and not letting them in because they didn't want to give the guy... A platform. And I went down there one day and asked the ringleaders what they expected to happen. I mean, did they think the Oxford Union holds about 450 people? You would be guaranteed that number. Possibly more hanging over the spectators gallery for someone of that controversial nature. Mm -hmm. What did they think was going to happen? Did they think that 450 university students, Oxford University students, would listen to this man speak? this risible silly little man speak, and goose step their way out <laughs> of the chamber. I mean, I'm, I'm making a point through humor, but I'm serious. What exactly did they think was going to happen? There to are loafers him? clacking as one right. on Did they think <laughs> okay. that the future leaders, and I'm afraid there is a fairly direct link between Oxford University, the Oxford Union, and the British Parliament and British policy.
1: Pretty much a farm league, yeah.
0: Yeah, so did they think that country. we would look back in 30 years, Britain having turned into some white socialist paradise, and date it to the point at which they were exposed to the ill-thought-out, bigoted views of this silly man, uh, I don't know. They could never quite account for it. And yet, always, as with Ian Hirsi Ali, it was with far too tolerant to tolerate him.
1: <laughs> I like this idea, actually, of a future uh, fascist Britain, because it just reminds me of one of my favorite uh, Shakespeare film adaptations, which is the A.M. McClellan version of Richard III, yeah. which is set in this mythical fascist uh, England. I can imagine sort of, you know, Patrick Buchanan getting the OBE Uh, in that sort of scene, something like that. You know, there used to be a guy, uh, he's probably still active. His name is Cliff Connectly. And uh, Cliff is a, uh, he's an evangelical preacher. And he's, you know, very anti-evolution. He's very, uh, you know, anti-gay and that sort of thing. And Cliff's thing for years, and I met him a number of times when I was in school, was he would just travel from campus to campus all over the country whatever college campuses, and if they had, you know, sort of a uh, quora or something like that, an area where people would gather for, uh, you know, speeches and things like that, he would just go and he would stay for however long he felt he needed to, days and days, and just debate anyone who wanted to debate him about any subject, you know, about, you know, his sort of biblical literalism and that sort of thing. And I don't think he ever had permission to do this. No one ever invited him. He just would show up and do it. And uh, though I disagree with the guy on a lot of things, I think his you know his theology is, is pretty bad and his biology is really not very good at all. But, um, you know, I admire his spirit of this. I will go anywhere, debate anyone on any of the subjects that I actually care about, and we're just going to do it and have it open. And it wasn't always nice. You know, it wasn't always, you know, gentlemanly, and people would sometimes jeer and that sort of thing. But I think that in the end, it was a really useful kind of thing, and so as many criticisms as I have at the University of Texas which I'll never give a dime to in case you guys are listening, at least it's not Brandeis
0: no uh, the Nick Griffins of the world to your point were of course are of course inspired uh, by the likes of Oswald Moseley yeah. the British fascist in the 1930s who saw himself as a Hitler figure in England, was Openly supportive, and was brilliantly parodied by P.G. Woodhouse as uh, Spode Roderick Spode, the black shirts. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And the black shirts, which was uh, Oswald Mosley's outfit, were allowed to, so to speak, (laughs) yes, (laughs) were laughed at in the streets in England. Laughter is, of course, the best way of dismissing anyone who is ridiculous, and and Woodhouse noticed this. This too, And I dare say that had uh, the likes of Nick Griffin come to the Oxford Union, he would have been laughed at in equal measure. Uh, people can be trusted to weed out the uh, risible. Yeah, something I always admired about
1: Mel Brooks, which was he was really the, sort of the first person of the, the post-war generation to really say, we can make fun of Hitler you know, what we should really do here is laugh. And when we first started doing these Hitler jokes, people were, you know, can we laugh about that? And I think there was, you know, some some genuine interest. You actually hit on something, maybe we should close out on this, but uh, a future topic, which is that when you talk about, you know, sort of progressivism in terms of the welfare state and social programs and things like that, plus racism, People think that you're nuts. They think that you know progressives and racists can never go together. But if you look, you know, throughout certainly European history and British history, and even modern uh, right-wing parties in, in France and places like that, they're mostly welfare status parties yes. that say we need to preserve our welfare state for the white people who live here and get rid of these foreigners and that sort of thing. Well, the Dixiecrats
0: love the New Deal.
1: Well, exactly. That's where I was going to go with that, which is that you know we should probably one day you know do a little bit of a talk uh, about that very subject about racism in the New Deal and uh, being probably, you know, as close to what you see on the national front and that sort of thing in the United States as you've probably seen in, in our history.
0: And free speech is linked to the Constitution of the Confederacy, which was a technocratic uh, document and a no substitute for the United States Constitution at all, had Hideous restrictions on what one could say about slavery. Yeah, it effectively outlawed any speaker who criticised slavery. Yeah, you know there is no easy historical line, and we we have uh, we joked yesterday about grad school seminars. <laughs> this is getting close to one as we finish. And I had two responses to that. The first one was that people rather liked the grad school seminar, so yeah. we should maybe go into this next time. Uh, and the second one that was that we end abruptly and we yeah, end I, so I abruptly. I saw that too that it's become a bit of a joke so here is once again that joke